0: This is the 9680 Podcast, episode 19, an overview of the early empire. This episode is the first part of an eventual two-part episode discussing the deification of Roman emperors. This was brought about as a result of a final paper I have to write for my course on Roman religion. The topic I chose was deification, and I chose an interesting route to go on to investigate it. As a main part of my research, I constructed a table of every emperor, starting from Augustus in 27 BC, up to and not including Diocletian in 284 AD. I'll talk more about the choice of 284 and Diocletian in a bit, but for now, just know that this list will be available on the subreddit, reddit.com r 96AD. You can find it in the episode description. I'll be updating the sourcing for it by next episode because I haven't fully fleshed out my arguments yet for each decision I made in the table. This list of just short of 50 emperors will contain the length of their reign, their dynasty, the nature of their death, if it was violent or not, and if they were deified after their death. My paper will use this table as its primary research, and in a way mathematically determine what sort of emperors are deified. Emperors who were assassinated, what percentage were deified? Emperors who reign a short time, what percentage were deified? What about emperors and dynasties, etc.? I'm very excited to delve into this material, and to cover it for the 20th episode, since this exact topic was almost a topic I chose as the primary one for this podcast, but in the end chose to mission in the year 96. It's been something I wanted to tackle for a while, that is, making a table of every emperor properly sourced. The problem I realized for this podcast is that we have not covered any material past the ascension of Vespasian, and so most of what I talk about will be incomprehensible. So, I will take this episode to tackle two different things. First, an overview of the Roman Empire to 284, focusing on the emperors. Second, a discussion on the creation of the table, and an exploration of what it means to do real history. I apologize in advance, these two episodes will contain a lot of names between the emperors and the historians, there may be a hundred different names that you have to know. Please don't despair, please don't feel as though you need to remember all of them. I will try to connect emperors to each other, maybe in arbitrary ways, and give the most memorable information about each emperor, so you can start situating them in your mind. It is also more important to understand the trends between the emperors and the time periods that they're in, than the specifics of their names and the dates that they ruled on. But for the sake of completeness, I will be saying the names and the dates and the ages. Altogether, there are 48 emperors who made their way onto my list. I'll discuss the difficulties in choosing what counts as an emperor later, but for now, just know that some of them reigned alongside each other, so this isn't exactly a clean series of 47 transitions of power. So far in the podcast, we have discussed ad nauseum the first nine emperors, that is, the five Julio-Claudians, and the emperors of the year of the four emperors. You should already be familiar with their careers and their fates. After Vespasian, his two sons would reign, one after the other until 96. Titus, the eldest, would reign for just two years, and admittedly he just reigned too short a time to make any mistakes, and so was loved by the people and historians. Domitian would succeed his older brother immediately after his death. I think Suetonius best summed up Domitian by arguing that his cruelty justified his assassination. The quality of his reign is debatable for sure, and we will be having that debate later on in this series, but for now, he was assassinated by the senate because he was undoubtedly cruel and authoritarian too much for their taste. Nerva, a senatorial man in his 60s, would be instantly elevated by the Senate in response, and maybe he played a role in Domitian's downfall. He naturally had no good relationship with the army because his career was almost exclusively senatorial. Nerva was forced to then placate the army by appointing their favorite, Trajan, to be his heir. This choice in air is so good that it single-handedly places him among the five good emperors. Though I don't like that distinction, we just can't get into it right now. Just know that Nerva would reign for only two years and would peacefully transfer power to Trajan, the best emperor, according to the Romans. Nerva, following in Titus' footsteps, would reign too short a time to cause any damages, and as we will see later in this podcast, he was on the edge of doing so. Trajan would bring the empire to its greatest extent during his nearly 20-year reign, adding four new provinces in the east, meaning most maps of Rome that you will see are dated to 117, the year of his death. What might be most interesting about Trajan, and interesting for the narrative of Rome that I would like to weave, is that he is the first provincial emperor. Say what you want about who I call the random emperor, Vitellius. He was still an Italian senator and so was a rather suitable candidate for emperor of the Romans. The first 13 emperors were senatorial Italians, most of which descended from some of the most well-connected families in Rome. Domitian, for example, actually holds the distinction of being born within the city. Trajan was from Spain. Granted, his family historically came from Rome, like 200 years ago, but he was still fully Spanish, and primarily rose through military positions rather than the Senate. So if someone tells you that Rome died because it stopped being Roman, tell them to shut the hell up because the man who the Romans themselves called the best emperor was from Spain, and until the end of time, pretty much none of the emperors would be Italian. Trajan was succeeded by Hadrian. When Hadrian was a boy, Trajan was made the guardian of him upon his parents' death. Hadrian would reign over 20 years, until 138. He may be most famous for his namesake wall in Britain. This wall is representative of his defensive posture and policies. He is also famous for his love of Greek culture and the fact that he spent the majority of his reign traveling the provinces. What I think is most important about Hadrian is his succession plans and the four-dimensional chess that he played in choosing his successor. Listen carefully, there's going to be a couple names. Hadrian found a young man who he wanted to succeed him. This is the famous Marcus Aurelius. Marcus was far too young to reign and Hadrian's health was failing, so he decided to pick an intermediate heir. He chose an old man named Aelius, hoping he would reign for a few years after him, and then Marcus would succeed him. And at that point, Marcus would be ready to rule. But Aelius died before Hadrian. Hadrian then found a second old man, Antoninus, to fill the same role. He forced Antoninus to adopt Marcus to ensure the succession plan. Antoninus had no son of his own, so this was no problem, and was a pretty clean way to set up the dynasty. But, Hadrian also made Antoninus adopt the son of Aelius, Lucius Verus. Hadrian died, and power transferred peacefully to Antoninus, with an heir and a spare. Antoninus Pius would accidentally reign for 23 years, until 161. Antoninus has become one of my favorite emperors because he reigned so long and so peacefully. He never left Italy, never went on campaign. Everyone on the Mediterranean just sort of took a break for an entire generation. An interesting thing to think about when it comes to Antoninus Pius is that he reigned for 23 years, which might not sound extremely long. There are many emperors who would reign longer than him, but he holds an interesting distinction. See, Marcus Aurelius, who would reign after him, would reign for 19 years. Until Diocletian in 284, no emperor would reign more than 20 years, but Diocletian set up a system wherein the empire was governed in four parts, so he reigned 20 years only over a portion of the empire. Constantine would be an emperor for over 20 years, but not over the whole of the empire, and by the end of the Constantinian dynasty, the empire would be permanently split by Valentinian and Valens. Only briefly under Theodosius would the empire of the entire Mediterranean be under one emperor, and that would be for a matter of months. After this, the empire would be permanently split into east and west, and there were many emperors who reigned for longer than 20 years over one of the two parts. In 476, the western half of the empire fell, and for another thousand years, the eastern empire stuck around. So, after Antoninus Pius, there was not another emperor who reigned over the entire Mediterranean for over 20 years. He was the last one to do so. I think that should represent how stable Rome was at this time, in terms of dynasty, but also in terms of its frontiers. Of course, when he died, the now fully capable and well-trained emperor and a half followed him. Marcus and Lucius reigned together, harmoniously, for nine years. Lucius cared relatively little for ruling, preferring games and such, but this didn't cause any problems for the state, because Marcus was ultimately at the helm. Lucius Verus died of the plague before any succession crisis could occur, nine years into their joint reign. Marcus would then reign a decade after him, until 180, spending most of his life on campaign. This is, of course, paradoxical to those who know something about Marcus Aurelius, since he is famously the philosopher-emperor. While on his campaigns, he wrote down his stoic philosophical thoughts, which was compiled into what we call his meditations. He was a good and conscientious emperor, and to some, he marks the end of Rome's golden age. I tend to see it in a way more nuanced than this, but for now, let's talk about Commodus. It may be surprising to hear, but despite the empire existing for over 200 years by the time of Marcus's death, there has never been an emperor born while their father was the emperor. There were no emperors born into the purple, as it were. Commodus, born shortly after Marcus's ascension, was the first one. This of course brought him to power at the age of 18. Commodus may just be Rome's worst emperor, but that title is hotly contested. He famously fought in the gladiatorial games, as you may have seen portrayed by Joaquin Phoenix in the remarkably inaccurate Gladiator. I won't delve into that film here, but just know that Commodus did actually fight in the games, a lot, and he really let that define him. He was megalomaniacal to an extent never seen before, and rarely since. He gave himself twelve pompous names, renamed each of the months after one of them, and supposedly tried to rename Rome Commodiana. He was assassinated on New Year's Eve of 192, after ruling a dozen years, a dozen too many for my taste, and surviving many assassination attempts beforehand. Now, this brings us into what is known as the Year of the Five Emperors. Of course, 193 AD really only had three emperors, since the other two never really had full control. It's actually quite simple, so don't be discouraged and try to keep up. Commodus was murdered on New Year's Eve 192. A general named Pertinax was elevated by the Senate in a move similar to Nerva after Domitian's death, and the Year of the Five Emperors started on January 1st. Pertinax, similar to Galba in these respects of being a senatorial general, was also similar to Galba for his poor decisions in frugality. Pertinax met his fate very quickly because he didn't pay the Praetorian Guard, and died after just three months on the throne. Now, the Praetorian Guard decided that they wanted payment, so they decided that the man who would provide the biggest bonus should be emperor. In one of the craziest stories in all of history, let alone Roman history, Didius Julianus was proclaimed Emperor of the Romans as a result of an auction. He literally purchased the empire from the imperial bodyguards. The title that granted full control over the entire Mediterranean, the largest empire on earth, was sold to the highest bidder. In what I think is a relatively reasonable response, three different provincial generals revolted in response to this. Two of them wouldn't be successful, but the one who matters is Septimius Severus. Didius Julianus reigned just as long as it took Severus to march on Rome. Septimius Severus was proclaimed emperor by the Senate, Julianus was killed, and the Severan dynasty was established. Septimius Severus was North African, which is cool, and the rest of his dynasty would hail from North Africa, or Syria. Just to demonstrate how the emperors of the Romans could come from anywhere. Severus was, through and through, a martial emperor. He continually campaigned and significantly raised soldier pay. He would die on campaign in 211, passing the empire to his two sons. Unlike Lucius Verus and Marcus Aurelius, these two boys did not get along. Geta and Caracalla, the sons of Severus, hated each other. The palace was literally split down the middle between the two, as the juvenile emperors squabbled over who controlled what. Geta was killed by Caracalla personally, in front of his mother, not long after their ascension. Caracalla would then reign alone for six years. There's a few interesting things to note about Caracalla. First, his reign was filled with cruelty and he is generally despised. Second, in a scheme to make more tax money, Caracalla issued an edict wherein everyone living within the borders of the empire, aside from like slaves and women of course, would become citizens. This made Rome more similar to a modern country, which is pretty neat. The third, maybe slightly less consequential thing about Caracalla is the name we call him. For surprisingly the second time, we have a Roman emperor who we refer to by a piece of clothing. Caracalla is named after the type of cloak he wore. Recall that Caligula was named thus for the cute army boots that he wore as a child. I see some similarities between the two in the way that they ruled and came to power, so maybe this is a way in which we just remember these type of bad emperors. Caracalla would be assassinated by the Praetorian Prefect, the head of the Praetorian Guard. Macrinus was his name, and his short reign for just about a year would have two very important ramifications. First, he was the first non-senatorial emperor, who's from the class just below senatorial, equestrian. Even 23 emperors in, we only had aristocratic senatorial emperors. But what you'll see further into Rome's history is that less and less emperors would come from this senatorial class. And the first equestrian emperor demonstrates that shift. What this also means is that Macrinus was the first usurping emperor who had no senatorial career. He was built entirely and exclusively from the military. Trajan and Vespasian, among all the other martial emperors we have seen, were at least consuls and governors before their time in the purple. The second interesting thing about Macrinus is that he is the first emperor to never visit Rome during his reign, which he did not do by choice, he just didn't reign long enough to get there. What stopped Macrinus from getting to Rome was the rest of the Severans. So far, the Severan dynasty included Septimius and his two sons, Geta and Caracalla. A cousin of the main Severan line was Elagabalus. His mother claimed that this 14-year-old boy was the son of Caracalla, and should therefore be emperor. This is of course ridiculous, but the army played along. Elagabalus became emperor, Macrinus was killed, and the Severan dynasty again ruled Rome. Elagabalus would rule for four years until 222, dying at the age of 18. Elagabalus might be most famous for his deviant sexual behavior, and his religion. Elagabalus's name itself comes from the fact that he's the priest of Elagabal, a sun god, and tried to make it the main god of Rome. This is, of course, very offensive to try and put some arbitrary god above Jupiter in Rome. What is unique about Elagabalus among maybe every other monarch in antiquity, is that he may be described as transgender. There was, of course, no concept of this in antiquity, but in general, it doesn't seem unreasonable that if brought into the 21st century, Elagabalus would have identified as such. He, or she, or they, we just cannot get into that right now, maybe another time. He was famous for wanting to be called Queen, and for being romantically involved with men, and for also committing many sexual crimes and indecencies. This, including the religious stuff, was very offensive to the Romans, and he was eventually replaced by his more well-liked cousin, Severus Alexander. I like Severus Alexander a lot. He was only 13 when he became emperor, and he reigned for 13 years. And reigned quite well. It's said that his overbearing mother ruined his reign and got him killed through her influence, Maybe that's true, but it also might be the case that the influence is what kept him in power and in the good books of the right people for over a dozen years, and eventually that just expired. Who's to say? Severus Alexander and his administration was excellent at holding the Empire together and being measured and reasonable in their rulership. Though he never did like military matters, and became dangerously unpopular with the army. He would end up being murdered by his troops at the command of Maximinus Thrax. The year is 235 AD, and we're entering Easily the most complicated period in Roman history. From now until 284 AD, a period of less than 50 years, there will be 22 emperors. For reference, there have only been 26 emperors in 250 years since the empire was formed. These random emperors will be proclaimed by the soldiers in the provinces. They would each reign only a couple years, and then they would be killed by the next guy proclaimed by his soldiers. Rinse and repeat. Thrax is the first of these soldier emperors. And he is despised by the senate in Rome. In similar ways to Macrinus, Thrax was not a senator who became emperor, he never visited Rome, but for a reign of three years, this was a deliberate choice. Maximinus Thrax wasn't even an equestrian, so we have a truly lowly emperor in terms of status, for the first time ever. He became wildly unpopular in Rome as his reign of terror worsened. In 238 AD we have what may be the most complicated year in the most complicated period in Roman history. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the year of the six emperors. In North Africa, Gordian was declared emperor. Gordian, a roughly 80-year-old senatorial academic, governor of North Africa, was forced upon the role of emperor by the disenfranchised peoples of his province. Gordian and his son, who we will call Gordian II, became emperors, but unfortunately had no considerable army within their grasp. Around the same time, a rumor came to the Senate that Thrax was dead. They immediately declared the Gordians as their new emperors. It was really unfortunate for the Senate then, when they later heard that Thrax was actually alive, and obviously furious. In response, a governor of a province near the Gordians who supported Thrax marched their armies to the Gordians in Carthage. The Gordians had no armies of their own, and folded immediately to the pro-Thrax governor. Gordian II fell in battle, and the first Gordian committed suicide afterwards. It is exactly at this point, as the Senate stared up the Italian peninsula at the furious and unopposed Maximinus Thrax that the Roman Empire probably should have collapsed. Thrax stared down back at them, with a fury I could not compare to another point in history. Thrax absolutely hated the Senate, and now the entirety of the Senate is guilty of treason, and therefore he has a justification to purge them. In a parallel universe, the Senate couldn't hold themselves together. Thrax marched on Rome and massacred the entire ruling class, including the entire Senate and every ally they had. The result may have been a fracturing and collapse of the empire of the Romans, and we would forever know Maximinus Thrax as the last and worst emperor of the Romans. As we will soon see, it is not far off from now that even competent emperors oversee the splitting of the empire in not two, but three and nearly five different kingdoms. If Thrax marched on Rome in 238, there may have been nobody to meet the barbarians at the gate. And in all honesty, Rome has fallen so far already, maybe it should have collapsed. The militant barbarian emperor, Maximinus Thrax, has committed and is about to commit atrocities against the good Romans of the day, while the good and decent Gordians, who devoted their lives to peaceful governance and academia, are killed in the sands and villas of Carthage. Since Marcus Aurelius, we have had five different emperors ascend before the age of 23. Since the enlightened rule of the wise Marcus, the pious Antoninus, and the greatest of them all Trajan, we have had twelve emperors in but forty years, with only a single one dying of natural causes, the militant Septimius Severus. The Romans have resorted to the lowest of men among the military ranks to lead them, and this is the blighted fruit that these emperors have cultivated. Cast aside the year of the four, and hell, even the year of the five emperors, in this year we will have six emperors, which were only halfway through. The right to rule of the greatest empire on earth is really in question when it cannot facilitate an internal reign of peace. A hundred years ago, Hadrian left the Roman Empire with a planned-out succession that would peacefully rule the empire until the death of Commodus 60 years and three generations later. Two hundred years ago, Augustus concluded a tenure of over four decades, spawning a dynasty of emperors that would reign almost two decades on average. 300 years ago, Julius Caesar marched on the city of Rome, and not a single senator was harmed. 400 years ago, the Roman Empire established dominance over the entire Mediterranean, as Carthage and Corinth simultaneously fell to them. Now, the Emperor was about to take the royal army of the empire that owns the Mediterranean and use it to massacre and likely raze the Eternal City. Did the Romans even deserve to keep their empire at this point? Well, fortunately for us who are fans of the Roman Empire, Thrax did not make it to Rome. The Senate did get their act together and appointed two men, Balbinus and Pupienus, to lead the Senate's defense against Maximinus Thrax. Of course, the rapid defense was all it was. The Senate had no considerable armies close at hand and Thrax was marching into Italy with his. They had to somehow get him killed before he triumphantly entered the city. The two emperors organized their defense, and when they ran into a small problem of having the populace of the city despise them, they appeased the people who loved the Gordians by adopting Gordian I's grandson, the 13-year-old Gordian III, as their heir. With the people now at their back, they squared off against Maximinus Thrax. Thrax should have won this conflict candidly, but he was relatively sloppy and perhaps overestimated his position. A delayed siege of Aquileia made the troops of the emperor doubt his abilities and despise him, and he ended up dead. I can only imagine the rejoicing in Rome at the news, for about three seconds, until the two senatorial co-emperors realized their position. It turns out they hated each other, and their squabbling resulted in both their deaths at the hands of the Praetorian Guard. Now, in late 238, only the third Gordian remained on the imperial throne. Small recap. Gordian I and Gordian II were elevated in response to Maximinus Thrax. A governor, in support of Maximinus Thrax, marched their armies on the Gordians, and the Gordians ended up dead. The Senate then elevated two of their own to be emperor against Thrax. These two emperors had to elevate Gordian III as their heir to appease the people. Thrax was killed by his army, and then the two senatorial emperors were killed by the Praetorian Guard. This leaves the 13-year-old Gordian III. I like Gordian III, who... Similar to Severus Alexander, ascended at the age of 13 and was a conscientious ruler. I'm always impressed by these good quality young emperors. The sheer amount of bad emperors who ascended really young makes these stand out all the more. They outperformed Caligula, Nero, Commodus, Caracalla, and Elagabalus, who all ascended at older ages than them. He reigned over half a decade, which as we will soon see is actually a really good run, all things considered. He died under suspicious circumstances on campaign in the east. He was succeeded by the head of his Praetorian guard, Philip. Philip may have killed Gordian, and I'm somewhat inclined to believe that, but I think a bigger part of me believes in Philip's innocence. But the sources are immensely shoddy, as is typical for this time period, as I will get into later. Now get ready for a flurry of names. Don't worry about remembering them, just try to internalize the nature of these reigns, their lengths and their ends. Philip reigned five years until the troops rebelled against him and placed Decius on the throne. The only thing to note, really, from Philip's reign is that he celebrated Rome's 1,000th birthday. Recall that, according to legend, Rome was founded in April of 753 BC. He apparently put on immaculate games, the economy be damned. Decius, who usurped Philip, is a generally beloved emperor, mostly because he died at the hands of an enemy army, which is embarrassing, yes, but this is a respectable way for a Roman to die. Far better than, say, being captured by those enemies. I can't possibly imagine that happening. He ruled for just shy of two years, and died on the battlefield alongside his son and heir. The armies then appointed Gallus, who probably had the single most difficult ascension to try and maneuver. The Romans just got whooped by the Goths, and their emperor was killed in the fray. The cracks in the empire are clear to all, and Gallus has to somehow piece it together. The first thing he did was brilliant. He appealed to the second son of Decius, Hostilian, and the Senate in Rome. He explains that he would like to reign alongside the young Hostilian and simply act as his general. This system was good enough to prevent a purge from either side, and so both Gallus and Hostilian were likely just happy to be alive. It would have been pretty easy for Gallus to just turn his army on Rome and take out Hostilian, but that would weaken the frontiers, so it was both the most decent and militarily advantageous move to make. Hostilian would also die shortly after, so no difficulties were ever reached in determining the succession plan. His death is relatively suspicious, but I'm inclined to believe that it's natural. Gallus would reign for just less than two years, and was killed by his soldiers during the revolt of Aemilianus. Aemilianus' troops declared him emperor, Gallus died, and then Aemilianus' troops killed him the second Valerian reached them. Valerian was the most distinguished man of the empire, and after hearing of Gallus' death, he revolted against Aemilianus. Aemilianus' men instantly regretted their decision, given the prestige and ability of Valerian. After the recently deceased Decius, Valerian was easily the most respected man of the empire. Valerian became emperor, and for a minute, we will have slightly less names. For now, it's 253, and let's do a little bit of a recap. Philip reigned five years, was violently replaced by the beloved Decius, who reigned two years and died in battle, who was replaced by the decent Gallus, who reigned two years and was violently replaced by Emilianus, who reigned, like, three months and was replaced by the distinguished Valerian. Valerian immediately appointed his son, Gallienus, as co-emperor. Gallienus was, like, 35, and so was therefore a reasonable age to fully aid his father in ruling the empire, and took an active role from the start. This dynasty would rule Rome for 15 years, which is incredible. Given that Maximinus Thrax died only 15 years ago, and there have been like 10 emperors since then, it's incredible that just two would rule for so long. Gallienus is also among my favorite emperors, mainly for this incredible feat. The reign of Valerian and Gallienus, despite being so long, was an absolute disaster, no fault of their own. It was only a disaster and not the end of the empire because of their diligence. Seven years into their joint reign, Valerian would be captured by the Sassanian forces in the east after a devastating defeat. Decius died in battle only 10 years earlier, but now the emperor of the Romans was captured and used as a stepstool of the Persian king of kings. His ultimate fate is not known to us. Next was the eight years of Gallienus' sole rule, who spent the entire reign sprinting around the empire putting out fires. If you believe the Historia Augusta, which you shouldn't, we'll get into that soon, there were 30 revolts against Gallienus. This isn't true, there are far less, but it gives you a sense of how the Romans perceived this period. There are at least four major threats to his reign. He would quell multiple of them, but some would also be successful. For one, some of the western provinces would entirely secede into a Gallic empire. And a Roman-ish city in the eastern desert would eventually conquer a portion of the eastern empire for themselves. Gallienus oversaw the empire split into three, but kept what he had together, which is actually incredible. Most incredibly, he would dodge assassinations for all these years. Eventually his luck would catch up to him though. He would die after 15 absolutely restless years on the throne and he was killed by his troops. His successor may have killed him, but we just don't know. His successor is another beloved emperor because of how they died. This will shock you, he died of natural causes. Claudius Gothicus ruled for two years, ascending to the throne by unanimous decision of the army. He was the most beloved commander of the soldiers at the time. He would die of the plague two years into his reign. This is extra remarkable, because aside from the suspicious cases of Valerian, Hostilian, and Gordian III, the last emperor who for sure died of natural causes was Septimius Severus, almost 60 years ago. The second-in-command of Claudius Gothicus in 270 AD, Aurelian was put into the imperial position after a brief skirmish. Aurelian would reign for five years, a highlight among emperors of this time for his sheer ability and impact over those five years. His five-year reign oversaw the crucial walls built around Rome, a reorganization of the monetary system, which ultimately achieved little aside from decentralizing it from Rome, and the reunification of the empire after it fractured under Gallienus. He spent his reign traveling to the east, pummeling the seceded kingdom there twice, then returned to the west and subjugated the Gallic empire. He would be hailed as the restorer of the world by the senate, an a claim comparable only to Trajan's title of Optimus Princeps. Aurelian would be murdered in 275 in a miscommunication. Try your best to listen up, this gets a bit confusing. A disenfranchised administrator forged letters that convinced the higher-ups in the army of Aurelian that Aurelian was going to kill them. So they killed him first. This put them in an awkward position after his death, however, since the origin of the plot eventually became evident, and anyone who was responsible for the death of the best emperor ever is certainly about to get themselves killed by the army. That administrator who caused it all was killed, of course, but now the soldiers among Aurelian's army kind of stared at each other while they figured out who was in charge next. See, it would seem too much as though you killed Aurelian if you seized power right now. So, nobody on hand wanted to take control, which was the typical way these kinds of things were resolved. The Senate also didn't feel confident in appointing the Emperor, since last time this happened they both got murdered after three months, and they weren't exactly feeling confident in themselves to choose someone that the army would like. Eventually, though, the senate would acquiesce and appointed Tacitus. This Tacitus is in no way that we know of connected to the historian. This is just a coincidence. This emperor, very reminiscent of Nerva, was old and senatorial. The army had no love for him, but despite this, it appears that he died of natural causes half a year into his reign. His brother would succeed him, but ultimately one of Aurelian's generals, who wasn't on site at the time of Aurelian's death, took charge. This would be Probus, another one of my favorite emperors. The Empire is on the road to recovery, and so Probus's massive army had nothing to do. It was a peaceful time, and Probus would boast about how soon there wouldn't even be a need for soldiers, placing Probus thousands of years ahead of his time. The troops, whose seditions would grow as they lounged around or were put to hard labor, eventually killed him after six years in charge. What's interesting to think about, however, is that after six years on the throne, only three emperors reigned longer than him in the last 50 years. These would be Gordian III at six years as well, Valerian at seven, and Gallienus at eight on his own. Probus's death may have been caused by his successor Carus. Carus was another military man who would reign a year and maybe died as a result of a lightning bolt, which is crazy. His sons Numerian and Carinus would inherit the throne from him. His sons would each die in the next two years, the last at the hands of the ultimate successor. This successor was Diocletian. Diocletian is an awesome figure, and like so many others, I'd love to talk about him. We just don't have the time right now. (laughs) He may be one of the most crucial figures in Roman history or all of world history that doesn't get talked about as much as he should be. For now though, this is where the narrative ends. That's it, 48 emperors and over 300 years of history. I would like to briefly discuss the major themes to tie this all together and the way that I see the Roman Empire. As I see it, there's three distinct periods here. First, there's the early dynasties that bring us from Augustus to Domitian, encompassing the Julio Claudians, the 69 AD emperors, and the Flavians. Then we get the remarkable unbroken ascensions of adoption from Nerva to Marcus Aurelius, from 96 AD to 180 AD. What follows is Commodus and the subsequent year of the five emperors, and then the Severan dynasty. To me, this series of emperors from Nerva to Severus Alexander is what I might call the high dynasties. The Antonines and the Severins ruled Rome at the height of its territory and power. The death of the last Severan, Severus Alexander in 235, ushered in an entirely new period. These first two chapters in Roman imperial history saw 11 and 15 emperors respectively. The 50 years of the crisis of the 3rd century, from 235 to 284, had 22 emperors. This last period represents an existential threat to Rome, as a series of over a dozen completely random soldier emperors ruled the empire. This distinction, I think, mainly comes to me from the sources. For the early dynasties, we have Suetonius and Tacitus, who ended with Domitian. Dio stops at the end of the High Dynasties, since he died during the reign of Severus Alexander. So not only are there some noticeable differences between the three periods, These differences are artificially inflated to us because of the different sources, and that the stories are being told to us in different voices from different times. So this might be why these periods are viewed so distinctly to us, because we're getting them presented in such different ways. If Suetonius wrote the entire history of Rome to Diocletian, we might think of less of a distinction. The crisis period is characterized by terrible sources, and this uncertainty leads into our confusion about the period which might make us believe that the Romans of the day would have felt uncertain and confused as well, which may not entirely be the case. This is all causing us to maybe misrepresent the period of the crisis of the 3rd century, that if we had a more stable historical narrative for it, it might seem less confusing. But for the sake of this episode and the chart, I will use a simple three-phase distinction, because I think it actually is quite helpful. We can track the differences in Rome based on who was emperor. For the early dynasties, we had well-connected, senatorial families on the throne. There was an emphasis on political and social connections between families and influential people in the Roman world. Next, we have the high dynasties. The focus largely stayed similar, a focus on dynasty and connections. A significant difference may be seen in the ascensions of Elagabalus and Severus Alexander. As I see it, the ideas of dynasties are strengthened by the Romans at this point. There is no policy that an emperor needs or even should be the relative of a previous one, but the Romans slowly developed into the same trap as many other kingdoms, relying on dynasties. The 14 and 13-year-old emperors represent a new low point for the extremes that dynasties will bring the empire. The young emperors in the Julio-Claudians were at least very closely related to and are the heirs of their predecessors. In the Severn period, disconnected 14-year-olds can become emperor when their mom lies about their connection to dead emperors and usurp the sitting emperor. As the empire progresses, we will see more and more random dynastic emperors, and they will only get younger and younger. The regency of these boys will become effectively the pivotal component of the palace politics of the Roman Empire until the 15th century. Furthermore, we saw more generals ascend to the imperial throne as time went on. And the complete change from Italian to provincial emperors. Starting with Trajan, the second emperor from what I call the high dynasties, the number of Italian emperors can be counted on like one hand. Finally, we have a crisis. All rules are completely thrown out the window as emperors won't even be a part of the equestrian class in the crisis of the third century. They'll never visit Rome, they'll murder their predecessor and are murdered by their successor a couple years later. So you could say that the early dynasties represent Italian emperors, the high dynasties represent the shift to provincial emperors, with the crisis period being composed almost exclusively of provincial military emperors. In the 3rd century crisis, Rome fractures and nearly collapses, with a series of surprisingly good emperors in Gallienus, Claudius Gothicus, Aurelian, and Probus, who saved the day and patched the empire back up for Diocletian to radically reform it so it could last another thousand years. I end at Diocletian for a number of reasons. First, Diocletian's reforms introduced the tetrarchy the system of dividing the empire between four emperors. So, the narrative becomes exponentially more difficult to track, with a series of parallel emperors. The Tetrarchy doesn't actually last too long, but it does lead to the domination of the whole empire by Constantine. Constantine adds the second small wrinkle, as he was a converted Christian. After Constantine, emperors would be Christian, and therefore deification is absolutely out of the question. Off the top of my head, the only emperor after the ascension of Diocletian to be deified is Galerius, and so I find it not worth it to investigate deification at this time, since it really fades out after Aurelian. So, my narrative will track the deification of the emperors from the start of the empire to its peak, to its almost collapse, to its recovery, and not past its recovery stage, because this is also when it becomes Christian. And there you have it, a summary of the early imperial history of Rome. We all know I can struggle to keep things concise. Given that I struggled to fit the story of Julius Caesar into 8,000 words for an earlier episode, it should demonstrate how remarkable it is that I fit all this history into, well, a bit less than that. All of what I just said has surely exited your mind, as the flurry of names came and went. Don't worry too much about that it will take time to fully situate yourself in Roman history. After staring at the table of the emperors for a week straight, delving into the sources for each, I can tell you more about each of these emperors than I ought to know. That brings me into the next topic, the table. Just a reminder, the table will be on the subreddit, go have a look. If you'll recall, all that I was trying to accomplish was to create a master table of every emperor before Diocletian, list their reign length, age at death, dynasty, nature of death, and if they were deified. This was an exercise that I incorrectly thought would be relatively simple. I was lulled into this false idea because the early emperors were very easy to get information for. In fact, it would get harder as time went on. Suetonius and Tacitus, with support from Cassius Dio, accurately recorded the exact length of every emperor's reigns and the natures of their death. There is little to debate about the simple qualities of the emperors up to Domitian, aside from perhaps debating if Tiberius, Claudius, and Titus were poisoned or not. After the death of Domitian, and Suetonius and Tacitus leave us, the task becomes next to impossible. The first problem I encountered was Nerva himself, literally the next emperor after this, as there was a disagreement on his age, if he was 63 or 66. This threw the first wrench into my plans as I wanted to compare young and old emperors as one of the things to talk about for deification. I relied on Dio for the next couple emperors, and we will have Dio until Severus Alexander. Dio is of course very fragmentary at times, and critical pieces of information are just not existent anymore to us. What we have alongside Cassius Dio is (sighs) the Historia Augusta. The Historia Augusta, which chronicles the reign of the emperors from Hadrian up to Diocletian, is on the face of it exactly what I need. The problem is it is comically inaccurate. Arguably the most fun ancient source to read, the Historia Augusta will blatantly lie to you, make things up, and be proud of it. What the actual authorship was, or why it was written, who really can say for sure? Was it written by one guy? Six guys? One guy pretending to be six guys? Was the author trying to tell history, or deliberately trying to deceive the reader? Was there some inside joke that they were trying to tell? Were they actually writing under Constantine like they claim, or is that part of the joke that I'm just not in on? I like to think that it's all a con, and as I sit here, 1700 years later, bashing my head against the wall because they made another story up, I imagine the author looking down on me from the afterlife, and they could not be happier that they've pulled off the longest-running practical joke in the history of the world. I love the Historia Augusta. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it has made the past week of my life very difficult. For the crisis of the 3rd century, we lose Dio. All we have left are the Historia Augusta and several chronicles that have their own problems. Herodian is excellent, if a bit brief, but only takes us to the end of the Year of the Six Emperors. Aurelius Victor is awesome, chronicling every single emperor from Augustus, but some emperors are only treated with a sentence or two, and contain none of the information I'm looking for. The brief and sporadic accounts I have from Eutropius, Eusebius, Zosimus, and the unreasonably difficult to find online Zonaris are enough to fill the gaps. Largely, I started with Aurelius Victor, my only source that actually brings me all the way from Augustus to Diocletian. Then I would resort to the Historia Augusta and confirm with Herodias and Eutropius, who would frequently discuss deifications. Bless his heart. After hours of pouring through these sources, I found my table only partly complete. And it was feeling somewhat impossible, especially the question of the age of the emperors at the time of their deaths, and the really obscure, short-reigning emperors. I made the tough call to remove the age of the emperors at the time of their deaths from the table since for many crisis emperors, this information simply does not exist. It is reconstructed by modern historians, and I frequently disagree with their suggestions. The second considerable problem I ran into was a surprisingly deep question. What is an emperor? Who should count for the purpose of this list? After all, I included Lucius Verus, who ruled simultaneously with Marcus Aurelius, but I have excluded the sons of Macrinus, Thrax, Philip, Decius, Gallus, and Gallienus. Why did I include Geta, then? To preface this all, recall that the whole point of this exercise was to determine what makes an emperor deified or not for a paper for a class. While it is true that the sons of beloved emperors would be deified alongside them and the sons of hated ones were not, so they could provide more data points, it's not exactly the question I'm looking at. Whether or not the son of Macrinus was deified provides no real insight, since he was 10, appointed by his father, and died along his father, so really what does that say about the Roman Empire aside from what they thought of Macrinus? So I should only be looking at Macrinus then. The fact that the son wasn't deified really doesn't mean anything. Emperors like this son of Macrinus who had no individual career of their own to speak of and had no means to have received a different end than their father or brother or whatever should not be included in this list. I was originally going to include these boy co-emperors for completeness, but the reason to justify the removal from the list is that there is little information about them and that it makes compiling the list extremely difficult. I wanted to include them originally so I can include a separate category for these young boy emperors to see how many of them were deified, because I thought that was an interesting question, but I'm not going to be able to. So, this was the ultimate requirement for making it onto my list. The emperor in question must have had an independent career at some point that could have merited a different fate than the older emperor they were attached to. So, Lucius Ferris gets included because he died before Marcus Aurelius, and was deified a decade before Marcus died. So, this tells us something about how Marcus viewed him. The two non-emperors of the year, the five emperors, are not included because they never ruled Rome in an official capacity. They were only usurpers. Geta was included because he reigned officially alongside his brother and met an end opposite to him. The sons of Macrinus, Thrax, Philip, the first son of Decius, Gallus, and Gallienus, ruled only as heir to their father, had no official power, and were all very young. So they are not included. The brothers of Claudius Gothicus and Tacitus are included because they reigned briefly following their brother's death and so had full control over the state, despite being so short. Finally, the sons of Charis are included obviously because they reigned following their father's death. I do not trust what I find online. Or crazy enough, I don't agree with lots of what I see in modern scholarship. I wanted original ancient sources. That's what I wanted to consult. You might be surprised. Wikipedia is actually a great source for general information. But they never do cite the ancient sources, which makes it really difficult to find what they're talking about. They only cite obscure old books about the subject, which I can never find online, and they never cite the right page numbers. I found myself increasingly frustrated as books would not cite ancient sources, would cite them wrong, or get things wrong themselves. I would double-check things, like dates and ages on Wikipedia, since it contained the modern consensus on what date someone reigned or how old they were when they died. And I found myself disagreeing with what they were saying, or unable to find a citation for it. I modified three different Wikipedia pages of emperors whose deaths were misrepresented from what I found in the ancient sources. One thing that they frequently got wrong was claiming emperors were damned after their death. The Damnation of Memory is a whole other can of worms that I will get into eventually, a future anger-filled historiography lesson about terminology I think is outdated and misused. It was misused on these Wikipedia pages, so I changed them. We just can't get into this now, this episode is already far, far too long. What I mean to convey to you is that scholarship in ancient history isn't as pristine as you might think. My experience has been tracking down trails of footnotes that ultimately lead to no substantial sources. Citation is infrequent and wrong, and I've more than once had to track down the proper citation because incorrect line numbers are used or things like that. I decided to fully rely on ancient sources for this list because of how poor the scholarship for this period was, and I didn't trust myself to sift through to find what I need. I decided to use a more direct approach, and that was to use these ancient sources. An interesting fact is that at the university I go to, the biggest university in Canada, there is no one who studies this period. There was no one I could talk to to ask about this, because no one studies this. And so the scholarship is really minimal and really bad. I ran into similar problems with my research on Virginius, because I was looking into things that no one has thought of. And while I was trying to find the most obscure information about him, the trail of academia leaves me with more questions than answers. As I'm left to figure out who made up the information that I just read, since no ancient sources included it and all their citations don't either. I find myself, a young classicist, rubbing up against the fully established and admittedly snobby and exclusive club that is the study of ancient history. Many old historians are prudish and try to fit the history of the ancient world into their worldview, which grants the Romans far too much class and eloquence. I aim to change the direction of my scholarship, emphasizing the ancient sources. That doesn't mean I don't consult secondary sources. Many are precious and incredible, but that wasn't the aim of this project. Many secondary sources will be consulted for the writing of my essay, for example, but not for the making of the table. One thing that you'll find that ancient historians do, especially in the far past, is is mostly been corrected in modern times, but in like the 60s and stuff, they'll translate ancient letters and writings and give it nice, pretty, flowery language. And leave out the fact that Mark Antony was swearing a whole bunch in his letters to Octavius. Put in the swears in your translation. That's an important part of it. Mark Antony was being vulgar, so you should put that he was being vulgar. Don't put it in flowery language, it makes no sense. And this is kind of the way that ancient historians, especially in the past, have treated ancient history. Everything needs to be flowery and pretty and poetic and live up to my expectation of what the honorable Romans did in the past, when, let's be honest, the Romans sweared at each other and watched gladiator games. Fans of the History of Rome podcast, which I do suggest you all listen to, may be familiar with Mike Duncan saying that he isn't a historian. He talked about how historians are the people who comb through the ancient sources to find the smallest details to learn something new, and all that he does was summarize people's work for his podcast and his book. I'm in the same space as Mike, summarizing the work of others while also critically thinking about the history that I'm summarizing, of course. I find myself, in the construction of this table and the work that I'm doing for the Virginius project, for the first time really towing that line, because I really am digging into these ancient sources. I asked a professor of mine for advice on how to comb through the sources for the third century because I was really struggling with it, and we talked at length about the difficulties in finding information on the third century, and how much modern scholarship actually kind of sucks in terms of citations sometimes. She told me that there really isn't a good solution to my problem, and said, welcome to history, this is what it's really like, and that her experiences were very similar to my own. What a warm welcome to history this is as well. It is actually really fun to pour through these ancient sources. This is what I like to do. I wouldn't have done it for a week on end if I didn't like it. I'm not exactly breaking new ground here. Similar projects have been done and are accessible online. But I think the angle of deification and the singular focus on the literary accounts may be new. Breaking the line of Modern Scholarship's Game of Telephone. I could talk at length. An incredible length, really. But I'm already approaching like 9,000 words for this episode, so I really need to stop. That will be all for today's episode. For now, if you want to ask me questions or leave suggestions for the podcast, head on over to my de facto website, the 96AD subreddit. Just head on over to reddit.com slash r 96AD. You can find the link in the podcast description. I'll be posting updates about the podcast there, and I will respond to anybody who posts there or messages me. Another thing you'll find on the subreddit is a PayPal donate button. This is not required or expected. This podcast will remain free and I don't aim to profit. However, donations will cover the cost of production and will support me, a student who is attempting to study, work, and produce this podcast all at once. In two weeks, we'll delve into deification. I could not be more excited. I'll see you then.